0: Welcome to another edition, a special edition, really, of the Conference on World Affairs. KGNU's Hemispheres Show will host, we're really honored to host, Vicki Huddleston. Welcome. You just slid through the door. We'll let her catch her breath. She's former ambassador to Mali and Madagascar for the U.S. State Department. We'll touch on djembes and lemurs and <laughs> the current state of affairs, if that's okay, in the two former French colonies. So welcome
1: to Boulder, Vicki. Thank you, Nikki. It's been great. It's a wonderful conference, and it's great to be back. And I'm also um, a CU alumni, so it's particularly nice for me.
0: Oh, how wonderful. That's just great. Well, <laughs> welcome. It's good to have you.
1: Well, first of all, tell us, when were you assigned to both countries? I was assigned actually to Mali... Twice I went to Mali, one of my first jobs, when I was an economic officer, and it was during the really huge drought, which was 94 to 96, and it was a very, very tragic situation. But the United States provided a huge amount of help, and the Malians were particularly grateful. And then I returned to Mali as ambassador for the United States in 2002 and remained into, until 2005. The most exciting thing about that time is that is when the al-Qaeda extremist groups got their start in northern Mali. They were actually Algerians who came from the Algerian Islamic Army that had been defeated in Algeria, and they brought over into northern Mali 15 hostages, most of whom were Germans, and the Germ- Germany paid $5 million in ransom, and that allowed them to recruit and buy weapons. So that was way back in uh, 2002 was the beginning of these uh, uh, radical Islamic problems in uh, uh, Mali and West Africa. Interesting that it goes back that far. You have
0: the historical background to have watched this unfold, and we'll try and... uh Sort out how much is going on now. Is kidnap ransom and and drugs are they still the common currency in the desert?
1: To some degree, yes. Said I. am glad you brought in drugs, Nikki, because uh, really, what you saw or what you see with Al Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, which is the main group, there's now about five different groups that are adhering to uh, Al Qaeda in that region, and they have freedom pretty much of movement over a huge, huge space of perhaps uh, two to 5,000 square miles that includes three or four countries, Mauritania, Mali, Niger, Chad, uh, parts of southern Libya, southern Algeria, etc. cetera. Uh, these groups uh, grew, essentially, Because they did get into trafficking in drugs, trafficking in people, trafficking in weapons, and enormous payments of ransom. Ransom payments to Al Qaeda and Islamic Maghreb were probably between 60 and 80 million dollars, most of which were paid by France. Wow, wow, that's
0: just amazing. Yeah, I know. It's good that you touch on the, the size of this area. Because I almost think of it, night. Like, here's Molly, landlocked, and yet it's almost a nation within a nation, because they're almost completely surrounded by this other territory that really has been yes, the uh-huh. I mean, the blue people. I can remember hearing uh, about yes, the blue people yes, when yes. I was With in... The, uh,
1: because of the turbans that the men yeah. wrap around their head and the blue uh, wears off on yeah, their the forehead. Yeah, <laughs> the the indigo dye. I remember
0: that when I was in Western Sahara. And um, so they're uh, people of legend, really, and I guess they would call themselves the Azawad, right? Uh-huh. I mean, that's their well. Nation. They well,
1: they they call Northern Mali Azawad. Uh, here, here is what has happened. Is what what you have is colonialism brought about uh, often uh, putting together of two different ethnic or cultural or religious groups. In the case of Mali, uh, above the Niger River, to the north of the Niger River, it is Tuareg and Arab culture people. To the south of the Niger River are African people. In the case of Mali, 90% of the people are various African tribes, and of course they rule the country. But the Tuaregs and the Arabs, being Tuaregs and Arabs, never wanted to be ruled by the uh, black African people. And they said to France, we want to be independent. Well, actually, northern Mali is mainly the Sahara Desert, so it's not really viable. Probably what France should have done is say, okay, we'll attach you to Algeria. Because at least then it would be the same peoples and the same culture. Because what this led to in Mali was repeated rebellions by the Arabs or Barabish, along with the Tuaregs, against the Malian government, which had every right to rule. I mean, they are by far the majority. And they didn't treat the people of the north particularly badly, but it's a poor country, and the north was even poorer. But the real instigation of this Salafist uh, radical Islamist movement is not the Malian Turegs and Arabs. It was the Algerians who came in, took refuge there, Grew up their movement, and then when the Malians actually became more involved in it, was when uh, Gaddafi was defeated. And, and Libya is like a storehouse of every arm in the world. And Turags were in Gaddafi's army because that was one way he helped the Malian government, is he kept the Turags, who would probably have a rebellion for independence, in his army. So they came back, the weapons came back. Some of them, not all of them, joined the Salafast. Others just allied with them because they wanted their independent nation of Asawad, and they took over Timbuktu. And one of the more radical Malian groups ran Timbuktu. And if you've ever seen this really marvelous movie, Timbuktu... It's just incredible because it just shows what the tragedy was because the Salafists, the radical Islamists, do not believe in uh, the written work of the Sufi prophets. So they just tried to destroy the ancient manuscripts written in the 15th, 14th century. They did destroy uh, many of the special... Uh, religious shrines in the area because Timbuktu is a, re- a religious, cultural uh, city in which was one of the major intellectual cities of the desert. And a center for music, I have to say. Music. In fact, I, I should tell you my funny story. Uh, they had at that time the, the Festival of the Desert at Esikon, which is about oh, a, a half hour outside of Timbuktu. And At that festival, they have small tents for most of the performers, and performers come from all over the world, and then they have maybe about 10 really lovely tents for the ambassadors. So when I arrived, I saw this lovely tent with the American flag on it, and I said to the driver, well, just put my things there, I'll go listen to the music. And in the evening, when I came back, I kept walking by the tents, (laughs) but I couldn't find the one with the American flag. And So I said to our cultural affairs officer, you know, there's something wrong. I can't find my tent. So we went together to the tent, and there were people in it. Well, guess what? It was Robert Plant.
0: (laughs) No kidding.
1: (laughs) And he had said, I'm not staying in one of those little white tents. I'm going to stay in one of these nice tents. So my cultural affairs officer, he opens the flap, and Roger Plant comes up to us, and, and he says, very nicely to Robert Plant. Ah, uh, uh, sir, I'm really sorry, but this is the American ambassador's tent. <laughs> and Robert Plant says, "But I'm the ambassador to the world." <laughs> Oh,
0: that's too funny. So did you share a tent? I mean,
1: oh, Robert moved. <laughs> On oh, turn. <darn. laughs> yeah, true.
0: Oh, my gosh. Hmm. It must have been amazing to be out there in the desert. Yeah, I would think that it's now a very confused place. I mean, that in the days gone past, the Sahara was, you know, this whole chain of trade through the desert. And I imagine that the Toreg lived off of that trade. And then all of a sudden the coast developed and they're kind of out of a job. And now I can't imagine with all the different Islamist groups and the different factions at any one time, I mean, do you not know who you'll bump into and what their allegiance is these days? Well,
1: it's, a, it's really a true tragedy. I mean, there were, of course, these great festivals of the desert and this amazing music. But now it's too dangerous to go up there and, in addition... Uh, the Salafists who are still in the area. Of course, fortunately, the French came in and literally saved Mali from becoming a state under the control of al-Qaeda. Uh, they It's still very dangerous up there, but when when the al-Qaeda group held Timbuktu, they ki- killed people. They stoned people for you know playing their wonderful music. And, the, and as you say, now there's four or five groups uh, who are still operating in the desert, uh, many people I have a good friend Abu, uh, his whole family has had to flee he's He's a tureg I mean most Turags are moderate uh they're Sufi Muslim, which is one of the most peaceful and and mystical uh sunni religions, so it you know they've had to move their manuscripts now the manuscripts have been moved down to Bamako uh the The culture is in complete upheaval. And these were wonderful people who were dedicated to their past. For for instance, the iman of the major mosque in Timbuktu, uh, iman is Sufi. His family had been Iman since, you know, the 15th century, and he can name them all. But, he, you know, he too had to flee, and maybe he's come back now. Uh, because at least they've been, the Salafists have been pushed out of Timbuktu, but the the country is still essentially in upheaval, and it's, it's so tragic because the Malians are really wonderful people, hospitable t- people, but yet the Malians really have not come to terms with one of the basic problems, which is they'll have to give a considerable degree of autonomy to the north, to the Turags and Arabs, because they're never going to accept the idea that they are, shall we say, part of, an integral part of the Malian state. So it's going to have to be not an independent state, but a state that has major authority and power over its own development, its own culture, if this is going to work. But now, of course, they have to completely defeat the Salifas, that, that That's not happening because you have all of southern Libya in upheaval. You have no effective government in Libya. Uh, and you still have enormous amounts of weapons flowing back and forth through, through the area.
0: Yeah, and um, it reminds me almost of the Kurds that the... Um The colonial map is ill-fitting
1: right now. (laughs) Very ill-fitting.
0: Drawn in odd ways and not incorporating a whole group of people that now appear to be overlapping these nation-states that were developed after the fact. So, well, back in 2012, when the coup took out ATT, we had Captain Sanango, and he was U.S.-trained. So was it a tiny bit tricky when our French allies went in to, to chase out some of the um, the Islamist groups that had taken over those cities?
1: Well, you know, uh, Captain Songo, probably along with many other, well, I know along with many other uh, Malians are U- U.S. trained because we did a lot of training in Mali in the hopes of, first of all, trying to integrate the Tuareg and Arab people into the military so that The military had both black African and Turagan Arabs. All the different ethnic and cultural groups were in the military. So when Songo took over, it was because the Malian military had been defeated in the north by the uh, radical Islamists. They ran, they were embarrassed. They were also upset because they hadn't been. Paid because the Amalian government, although democratic, had become increasingly corrupt, and basically the West had kind of ignored the fact because we said, Oh, Mali, such a wonderful democracy, and ignored the fact that the corruption was just getting worse and worse under under ATT. So, uh, when uh, Songo took over, uh, the French. Were and ourselves were both very upset because that's a illegal coup. Uh, but what the the real the really serious problem was when the Salafists, allied with a small group of Malian Tuaregs, began to move not just in Timbuktu. They began to move down to the south, and they were going to attack the city, the capital, of Bamako and had they succeeded the uh, salafas aqim and its allies would have been in charge of a whole country in the center of africa of 12 million people of all its resources its gold uh, its uh, farm products its uh, human wealth and and a people who are utterly opposed to radical islam both in the north and the south because As I mentioned, they're all Sufis. (laughs) Uh, So it was, you know, it was so timely of the French to intervene, and the United States did provide assistance to the French when they intervened, as well as train some of the African Union troops who are currently there. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the AQIM, so that's an Al Qaeda uh, splinter, if you will. Well, you know, Al Qaeda has franchises. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, ISIS or ISIL. Uh, out of uh, uh, Iraq does the same thing. In fact, the two are rather in competition right now. So uh, al-Qaeda was the first. And so what al-Qaeda would do, an Islamic group like in Algeria would grow up and they would go into Mali uh, and uh, they would say, okay, we want to ally ourselves with al-Qaeda And al-Qaeda would say, fine, and here are your instructions. And those instructions would be to some degree carried out, not always, but there would be a loose alliance between them. And now what has happened is some of the groups in Mali, which makes it really dangerous, are in competition with each other. So more kidnapping, nor deaths, the blowing up of the Radisson Hotel and, and, and Bamako. Because you have an ISIL group and you have an AQIM group, both in competition. One of the worst uh, uh, terrorists in Mali is uh, Bel Mukhtar, which means bel, or Belwar. It means one eye. And he's an Algerian who came into Mali in 2002, married into a Barabish or Arab family uh, in northern Mali on the Mauritanian border. And began trafficking in cigarettes. It was just, you know, like a cigarette trafficker. And then, as he uh, kidnapped people, got more money. Uh, then he began to form a very effective small militia. And it was Bel Mukhtar who carried out the In Amenas uh, attack that killed approximately thirty-five, thirty-six. Uh, mainly foreigners, but Algerians in, as well, at the oil and gas plant in Algeria. He also was behind the hotel attack. Ah, uh-huh. Just last November. Yeah.
0: Um. So now you've you've mentioned a couple of groups. Let's round out the crowd. Is
1: Islamic Movement of Azawad now? Are they still active? Well, I wouldn't. I mean, they're they're Muslim. I wouldn't say they're Islamists. The the they split from al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb even before they captured Timbuktu. Before the, Timbuktu was captured by al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb and a small group, Yed Agagali, of Tura, of a Turag militia. Uh, the Islamic group for Asawad was not involved. In fact, they fought against them, and they fought with the French. So for the most part, the independent movement or autonomous movement uh, of Asawad is not uh, uh, associated with the the Islamists. And and it's too bad because often, you know, when you're reporting on the complex subjects of ethnicity and cultures and a a number of militias, a lot of uh, American and international reporters tend to throw the Turegs, the Arabs, <laughs> you know, in with actually uh, the Al-Qaeda militias, which other than uh, two smaller ones are Algerian-led. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, you, you contrasted the Sufi Muslims, which are the majority in Mali, compared to the Wahhabi, Salafi, mm-hmm. uh, Saudi-type folks that uh, fill out the ranks of the various Islamist groups. So they must be very different in nature
1: and in mission. Well, I, I guess I have to separate a little bit the Wahhabis. And, and I think the Wahhabis have led to radicalization throughout Africa. But there are many, many Wahhabis who are just businessmen. And that was the case in Mali. I knew many Wahhabis. They were part of the Islamic Council and Bamako, uh, they became Wahhabis because they were traders. And they are trading with Saudi Arabia, and Saudi Arabia is home to the Wahhabis. And then Saudi Arabia, which essentially exports Wahhabism through its embassy and through its commerce, uh, then built a lot of mosques in Mali. And one of the ways they do this, they do it in Mali and elsewhere, so they find a promising young man and they educate him. And he goes back as the an iman, and he preaches uh, Wahhabism, and he has more money for a Quranic school, which is going to teach more radical beliefs, uh, and he has more uh, goods, and so he he can expand his religion. So the Wahhabis have definitely made inroads into to Mali, but for the most part, Wahhabis are not the armed Islamists that uh, we're talking about who are up north. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't really create a conflict of
0: interest, or it doesn't get too dicey for the U.S., because there's enough of a split between the Saudi Arabian government and traders and so forth and the
1: Islamist groups. Right, okay. right, right. So, you know, most of the Islamist groups are um, Salafists, Pakistani Salafists trained in the uh, mosque and the uh, Quranic schools in Pakistan. And that's basically where they're coming out of. And then you have them joined by any number of international jihadists. Mali at one point was the second major uh, location for international jihadists, the first being Syria, of course
0: oh in terms of the diversity cuz you have Mauritanians coming Senegal and Morocco even got
1: involved for a little bit there yeah um your geography is great uh so you have you know on the on the on the coast first uh Mauritania on the Atlantic and then you have uh, uh Niger you have Mali and then you have Niger and then you have Chad all across uh the West Africa uh, and above them you have the North African countries, and the major ones being Algeria and, uh, and 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 Libya, so just as Islam moved down from North Africa into West Africa and now into Central Africa, so too has more radical Islam moved out of Algeria, moved out of Libya, down into West Africa. And has, uh, you know, had, I wouldn't say taken root because, again, I would say the major groups of Islamists are for the most part from North Africa with foreign fighters from Canada, from Europe, and perhaps a few as well from the United States. Right. So do the folks that would consider themselves
0: legitimate separatists, they really want a separate Culture that's going to stay there, remain there and, and flourish and so forth, the MNLA, would they consider some of these other groups counterproductive to their to their goals?
1: Yeah, it, well, I think since the MNLA and the Asawad were fighting against, in the end, uh, the Islamists very much so. I mean, right now they're fighting with the West and, and with the Malians. Uh, at first they thought maybe the enemy of my enemy, you know, is my friend. But they quickly learned that their enemy and their enemies uh, are the Islamists and the Islamist religion is con- contrary to everything they believe in because they are the protectors of the manuscripts. Uh Timotiu is the city of 333 saints. And the saints were the scholars who wrote many of the manuscripts. And the families of the saints are charged with Protecting and caring for and preserving those manuscripts, and the Salafists want to destroy the manuscripts because they don't reflect uh, the even earlier uh, Islamic beliefs of, say, the third century or the fifth century that they believe in.
0: Interesting. Let Let's have a listen to Bombino, a group that's Turek, very traditional.
1: All your music is amazing.
0: That's the group Bambino. Guitars from Agas Dez. And that um, tune is entitled Emu We're speaking about Mali and we're going to go to Madagascar later. Uh, we're lucky enough to have Vicky Huddleston in our studios with us this evening. Sort out what's going on. The music we have to mention is so amazing. We have a, a Mundi show here and we really enjoy world music so there's a lot of people that um, appreciate the music of Of Mali, and maybe later we'll have a little Salif Keita. And uh, now, is he related to the president, Keita? No, no.
1: I mean, it's just a very, very common Malian name, like Ture. Uh uh-huh, Right, yeah. right. I wondered if it was the same tribe or the same right. general well, tribe. Oh, pro- probably the same ethnic group,
0: yes. We've got the Traore family. I guess there's a lot of people that are in that, uh, mm-hmm. musicians that are in that group and so forth. But we'll do a little more sampling. But I wanted to mention the media. I'm always curious that I understand that there was a lot of um, broadcast and print media that it used to be one of the freest in Africa. Mm-hmm. And um, I know the uh, 2012 who really uh, changed a lot of that? And with the insurgents, there's been this um, emphasis on state control. The rebels then banned some of the Western music on radio, and they had their own influences, wanting to make it more strict and Quranic, if you will, recitations on the on the on the radio versus you know more journalism. What are the what's the state of things now? Are there many local radio stations that have a degree of autonomy?
1: Well, let me uh, start with what there was before, because as you say, Nikki, the press was uh, relatively free. There were probably five or six different newspapers, but these newspapers are only about three or four pages long. But, you know, they represented the different parties and some of the different ethnic groups in Mali. Radio has always been hugely important to the Malians because of perhaps, music and storytelling. Malians tell their history by repeating their history from generation to generation. So up in the north in particular, where there's very few people uh, and distances are great and it's hard to travel about, radios become extremely important. And one of the things we were doing in projects, of course, um, aid was able to move its projects, some of its projects up above the Niger River, even above Timbuktu, into Arawan, into Bear, where I traveled. And we would help, we would provide uh, funding, actually much of the money uh, came from the Department of Defense, humanitarian funding, to sink forages, which is a a well, but it's just a pipe, so you keep the, the water clean. But one of the things that we did in several of the villages is we had a radio project, and we called them suitcase radios. So in these very small towns, of course, you would have young people, and they would want to hear music, they would want to hear news, and so we would show them how to set up and run a, a suitcase radio, which is really cheap, and you have the antenna, and. Another important aspect of this is that if someone was sick you could use the radio to inform uh the nearest person with the car or the nearest hospital which might be thirty, forty miles away and two hours away because of the sand and and the lack of, of any roads. So the communication uh through radio and through music is a Malian tradition. In fact, there's a whole class of Malians across the desert, across all these West African countries, called giros. The giros are the people who do the recitation of history, who do the recitation of music. So actually, most of the Malian mi- musicians come from these families and these cultures and these traditions. Under the al-Qaeda salafists who took control uh, of Timbuktu and Gao, all this was forbidden. No music was permitted. Uh, now that they have been forced out of those major cities, music has returned, but how much, we don't even know because uh, no one from the West is going up there because the security situation is so incredibly unstable. Yeah, I heard something like in
0: 2012 there were 369 private stations on the air, and those were, I guess, real stations, not just out of a suitcase. (laughs) 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 Oh, that's wild. Well, let's um, have another listen then. There's just so much to listen to. We have Lobi Trattori, and the name of the CD is Molly Blue, so that's Ah. kind of appropriate. No Dayeli. That's the name of the tune on Mali Blue. We're enjoying music from Mali as we take a look at the region with former Ambassador Vicki Huddleston. So, Vicki, you mentioned corruption once, and, you know, how do you feel about it now? Are people feeling a little more empowered? Do people have a sense of local control, or is it still a fairly discouraging place for well-educated young people who are ambitious?
1: I think pretty discouraging because it's so insecure. Uh, Now we have uh, the United Nations forces in Mali. Uh, Many of the peacekeepers are African. In fact, in general, uh, United Nations peacekeepers in Africa, up to two-thirds are actually from around the countries of Africa, so Africans are looking after their security issues. But in Mali the situation is very, very difficult. Uh, In fact, the Mali United Nations and African Union mission is the most dangerous in the world. Uh, More peacekeepers are being killed in Mali uh, than any other place where there are uh, peacekeepers in the world. So I'm sure that people are feeling very insecure. And when there's insecurity... There's not much opportunity for good jobs, for development. Uh, certainly if you're in the North, you're probably not going to school because it's dangerous uh, to move from village to village. And things, things, education, culture really gets put on hold when you're in the midst of uh, a violent uh, upheaval. And indeed, Molly remains in the midst of a violent upheaval. Because you have no security even in the capital, since uh, several terrorist attacks have taken place there, what we what we have to hope is that the uh, the French, the Germans, and the African peacekeepers can, in fact, do a a better job of defeating the Salafists because they're not going to go away, you know. They they believe in what they're doing. They're going to keep trying to overrun Mali and any territory that they can gain because it, the more territory they have, the more access they have to resources and recruiting. So uh, I think, unfortunately, uh, the peacekeepers are going to have to be peacemakers to make Mali and the whole region, in fact, stable again because we're beginning to look at a whole arc of instability beginning in northern Nigeria with Boko Haram, which has taken more lives than any terrorist movement in the world, and then going up through parts of uh, Mauritania, Mali in the north, into Libya, part of, uh, part of Algeria, Libya, uh, northern Chad, and then you swing down into Sudan, which is pretty much southern Sudan in chaos, and connect up with al-Shabaab, which is a very nasty terrorist Somalia. movement in Somalia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I know. it's it's a, It's a dicey thing, and I guess more and more people are on the move. Would you say that there are fewer folks from around the region that are adding fuel to some of this conflict, or would you say it's still a fairly porous area?
1: Oh, it's a very porous area. There's no way to control the, the Sahara Desert. In fact, uh, when I was in Mali, and I did a lot of work up north, and it went up a lot, we were going to have a large conference that in the end, the government got frightened of and didn't do, which is very unfortunate, because it would have been a conference of all the Tuaregs and Barabish in the north. But when they called the conference, it wasn't just northern Mali. It was all the Tureks and Barabish from the, all the countries in the surrounding area, because these are traders, these are nomads, these are people who are herding cattle and goats and donkeys and, and camels. Uh, they don't know, they don't respect state borders. Mauritanian nomads are uh, culturally and family associated with Malian nomads and Malian with the Libyan and with Algerian and so on and so forth. So it's really a cultural group that is spread all across the vast Sahara that runs from the Atlantic Ocean across uh, to Ethiopia, essentially.
0: Yeah, and yet
1: those borders
0: look so severely drawn. There's that 90-degree angle in West Mali. It's just like, oh, boy, there's a line there. (laughs) It was easy
1: for the French and the British to do. They just got out their ruler.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Lord. Well, before we leave Mali and go to Madagascar, I just wondered what you saw for the future in Mali. What will be a solution?
1: I will answer in just a second, but I did want to tell you another story about King Mansa Musa. Please do. Uh, King Mansa Musa, I think, around uh, the 15th century, uh, mined gold, and Mali was very wealthy in gold. In fact, even today, Mali has a lot of gold. There's major, or were major, mining companies, international mining companies involved in looking for and mining Mali and gold. So he decided to visit Mecca, and he took this great retinue with him, and he loaded it with gold, And the story is that uh, when he got to Egypt, to Cairo, uh, and he stayed there for quite a while, uh, the amount of gold that he brought on to the market depressed the gold market for the next year. (laughs) And Uh in return, uh, when he got to Mecca, he brought back sand from Mecca. And the mosque in Gao is actually the bricks. Each brick has Uh a little bit of sand in the brick from from uh, Mecca, so what do I see? I mean, when yeah. when when a country or a region begins to suffer these violent upheavals, they don't end quickly. I mean, you may have, as in the case of Mali, peacekeepers, uh, a, now a democratic government re- elected, but the problems that brought it about—corruption, imperfect democracy, extreme poverty—in Mali. Uh, lack of educational opportunities they haven't gone away they've only been exacerbated by the presence of uh, a a radical Islamic group using the territory of Mali and other countries in the area and so I think that uh, over time the situation in Mali will stabilize but until uh, Mali uh, government and people find a way that works for both the people in the north and the people in the south, the underlying problems will not be resolved. And until the West and the countries where we have al-Qaeda and ISIL franchises operating, until they're defeated, these countries are not going to be secure, stable, or be able to develop in the way in which their populations need to. So I think we have, for perhaps another couple of decades, unfortunately, a, a fight between uh, Islamist uh, franchises and the local countries aided by the West. Yes, well, we'll stay tuned and see what
0: happens. Um, The end of last year was kind of dicey, and yet there's a lot of uh, sympathetic feelings on this side of the border for a country like Mali. Um, Indeed, it's a
1: wonderful country, and anybody who knows any Malians, you know, just always loves Malians because they're so friendly, they're so outgoing, they're so talented. Uh, So it is uh, truly a tragedy. Yeah. Let's touch a little bit on
0: Madagascar because it's 648, we have 10 more minutes of um, hemispheres here on KGNU. I was curious that it, it's so far away. What was it, 4,000 miles away across <laughs> the African continent? I've never been. Fourth largest island in the world. Exactly,
1: exactly. I got, we got
0: Australia. I don't know who the other two are in between, but at any rate, kind of a fascinating area. And I would love to go before all of it's deforested. I know that there's been various efforts up and down, depending on um, the economic security of the area as to how well they protect their forests or not. It's been a huge impact on the on the country.
1: That ring-tailed lemur, so how are they doing? <laughs> well, Madagascar's doing better, and so I'm glad that we've turned to Madagascar because I think we can be more hopeful about the situation in Madagascar. We're not uh, dealing with a, a terrorist movement, although ironically, one of the major terrorists who was involved in the uh, blowing up of our embassies in Nairobi and in Dar es Salaam, Kenya, and uh, Tanzania, was in fact uh, from from, Mal- from Madagascar. But Madagascar is just this really, really unique island. It was uh, colonized for a while by the British, and then the French took over. Uh, the first people to come to Madagascar were from the Far East, probably Indonesia and Malaysia. And then the next people who came to Madagascar were from Africa, which, of course, is off the coast of a- Africa. Uh, it had a monarchy. Uh, it had a uh, system of nobles who who run the government. And it was a pretty stable and pretty prosperous place with an Excellent, excellent system of education. And then of course, the most interesting thing about Mali, as you said, is, well, ringtail lemurs, all sorts of lemurs, and the fact that Mal, uh, Madagascar is perhaps uh, one of the uh, well, along with the Philippines, considered uh, the place in the world that has the most uh, unique species. And the reason for this in the case of Madagascar is that it was part of the global continents when they were all together, uh, South America, North America, Africa. And then when they broke apart, Africa, then South America, but after that happened, then Madagascar broke off from Africa. <laughs> so Africa, uh, Madagascar actually has... Animals that can DNA can be traced back to South America as well as Africa. So wow. it's really has these uh, incredibly unique species.
0: Yeah, I I read that over eighty percent of the plant species are specific to Madagascar, nowhere else in the world. And five whole plant families are just so. It's just yeah, mind-boggling.
1: And and can imagine there are all sorts of medicines and. Other Mm. things that could be developed from some of these medicines, uh, from some of these plants. And it's amazing that many haven't even been identified yet. Mm.
0: Well, um, I know that coffee, vanilla, cloves, all kinds of things that have been identified are madly being produced. And, uh, you know, hopefully with the whole recognition of natural resources and uh, ecotourism, maybe there's some economic incentive for protecting their forests a little more. I know that in um, when there were food shortages and so forth after um, the 2009 coup, then uh, you know Europe froze or the EU froze um, some aid and that kind um, of isolated them. And so then uh, left with um, dire economic situations, they started selling off the wood and so forth. So hopefully some of that has stopped. Um, do you, is, is there still slash and burn as a technique?
1: Uh, yes, I, that's absolutely uh, the way in which the uh, Malagash, for years and years and years, have uh, cultivated the land. Because if you burn, I mean, there's two kinds. Of, if you have the land and then you burn the land after the crops, then that helps the, the crops to reseed and regenerate. Now, of course, when you say slash and burn, you're actually talking about just going into these great old-growth go- forests and carving out a plot where you're going to produce some rice or some sorghum for your family. And uh, Madagascar is an amazing rice-producing country. That's the staple diet. And you can see these great terraces. And, and it's, it's just it's hard work, and it's intensive. But when they go into these great old-growth forests, it's so tragic. When I was there, uh, the Malgash government decided to uh, recognize and protect the Mashwallow Forest, which was the last of the coastal old-growth rainforests. On the east side where
0: it was so wet? Yes, yes.
1: And now, of course, the issue is after the uh, sanctions and the cutting off of aid because of the political situation, what has happened? Obviously, there's been more incursions into these forests. And, you know, I have to say, I think we need to be careful when we use cutting off aid as a punishment because we don't like the political system. It's true, you know, we don't like dictators, we want democracy, but many times you hurt the people. And then if you hurt the people and the people are forced to go in and, and uh, slash and burn uh, to grow crops to keep their families alive, perhaps you're doing more damage to the long-term future of the country than that dictator's going to do in the period in which he's in charge. Because like Uh, authoritarian president in the case of Mali, who wanted to stay at states of Madagascar, who wanted to stay on. You know, he isn't torturing people. Uh, We're not talking about a terrorist movement. We're talking about poor political rule. And I think uh, sometimes we should look at let's look at how we give aid, Let's try to continue to protect the people, to provide humanitarian aid, and to provide assistance that's going to protect the country for future generations. Right. And maybe not top down aid like US aid, but much smaller
0: grants with local control. Exactly. And, it know.
1: makes so much difference because it's going right to the people. Yeah, and sustainable micro projects. lending is a good example. Right, They're still quite
0: poor. I found something, it wasn't very recent, but it said that 90% of the folks live on $2 a day or less. So it's still um, a fairly depressed area, and that's too bad with so many natural resources.
1: Yes, uh, you know, Madagascar could have um, just amazing tourism because you have all this biodiversity. You have several parks that have different kinds of lemurs. Uh, so there's a lot of interest to, to visit these parks you can have uh tour ships stopping along the coast uh you have an old uh culture of uh of, of a monarchy which is interesting to see so, and the malgas themselves are lovely people they uh are extremely well educated they are extremely well spoken in fact uh ivory coast and madagascar had the most french Residents of any countries in Africa, but Madagascar is just so interesting because it's a combination of Africa and the Far East. So you get you really a, a different kind of feel and a different different culture in it. It really, you know, while connected to Africa, it's separate from Africa.
0: Mm. Are the people have they got that sort of peaceful demeanor like the Balinese of uh, Indonesia? Is there that kind of calm Polynesian I,
1: Yeah, I, I think that's true. Although I have to tell you that uh, <laughs> Madagascar was one of the very first countries after World War II to attempt to obtain independence from France. Oh, in the fifties, and it was brutally put down by the French, but they really fought hard. So I, I think you know the Malgas seem very. Peaceful, but I think in in fact, uh, in certain situations they can be pretty fierce. Mm-hmm.
0: They got independence exactly the same time as Mali. Are there cultural connections between the two countries?
1: Ah, uh, very very little. Um, there's some, you know, uh, fear in uh, Madagascar of the Malians and Senegalese because the French used Malians and Senegalese troops to put down uh, the first attempt for uh, independence. Uh-huh, that doesn't help relations. <laughs> well, so, yeah, and, 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 there, and, you know, uh, the cultures are so different, very different. Uh, the Malians and the uh, Senegalese and the West Coast Africans are very tall people, and uh, the Malgash, for the most part, are quite small so and they you know there's a difference often in color and feature and language and uh, so there's and and religion because uh, for a long time uh, Madagascar was principally Christian now uh, more and more it's Muslim as well but it was uh, had a has a long Christian tradition
0: well let's go out with yet a little more music there's just so much music from the region in so little (laughs) time but I thank you very much for being here, uh, for our listeners, for tuning in to KGNU's Hemisphere Show this evening. We've been catching up on the news of Mali and Madagascar with Vicky Huddleston, as part of the conference on world affairs. Coriente is at eight, and Heavy Set ten to midnight. So keep your dial tuned to KGNU, your favorite community radio station. If you have a comment about this or any other show on KGNU, please leave a message on our comment line. That's 303-447-9911. I've been your host, Nikki Kaiser. Have a look and another listen on our news blog, news.kgnu.org. Thank you so much for being in Boulder, Vicky.
1: Thank time- you, Nikki. It's been great being here and talking about Mali and Madagascar. I've really enjoyed it. Wonderful. Well, thank you for your time.